0: Welcome to This Lawyer's Life, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Your host, Gregory Benstock, is the City Bar's Director of Professional Development. Today, he sits down with Maya Goodell, a partner at Vladek, Raskin, and Clark. Maya shared the story of her path from U.S. Navy officer to civil rights advocate.
1: Employment discrimination was the field where there are these strong equality laws and you have the opportunity to go to court and to tell people's stories to translate their stories into, this is why this is a legal violation, this is why it's
0: discrimination. She unpacks what she's learned about navigating relationships with clients when the stakes are at their highest.
1: Maintaining the relationship, maintaining the trust, which means respecting what a client has to say even if it's not what I would do.
0: Greg and Maya also talked about building litigation teams and the right litigation mindset.
1: You need to be able to think about what did the courts say? What's the language in the statute? What's the evidence that's in the case?
0: Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Here's Gregory Binstock.
2: Welcome to This Lawyer's Life, a professional development podcast where we talk with lawyers about seizing opportunities, learning lessons the hard way, and about what makes them tick. I'm Gregory Binstock, Director of Professional Development here at the New York City Bar Association, and today I have the pleasure to chat with Maya Goodell. Maya Goodell, you're a partner at Vladek, Raskin & Clark, PC, where you establish and lead your firm's disability rights and justice practice. You were a U.S. Navy officer and one of the first female U.S. Navy officers to serve aboard combatant ships. You created the Workplace Safety and Health Initiative at Mobilization for Justice to help low-wage and immigrant workers, and you have successfully sued the MTA over its compliance with the New York City human rights law, among many other actions, and now you're here with us. Welcome, Maya, and we are so glad to have you join us. Thank you for being here.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, and thank you for that flattering introduction.
2: Maya, I want to begin with the beginning of your legal career. What led you to the law?
1: So, as you mentioned, I joined the Navy after college, and this was the 1990s. They were just integrating women onto combat ships, and that caused me to really feel drawn to questions of equality, equal status, dignity for myself, but also as I went through that five-year experience, looking at how different people were affected, like enlisted women didn't have the same experience as I did as an officer, and really thinking about the multidimensional aspects of equality and how to change that in society. I did a series of informational interviews with people in all kinds of different fields. I talked with people who were in philosophy or sociology, but I came to feel like the law was really kind of where theory meets reality and you can make some change in the world. And that dovetailed with my experience in the Navy of seeing how important the structure and enforcement of rules was to kind of feeling like I had equal status.
2: Was there an experience that crystallized for you the difference between being an enlisted person and an officer in the Navy?
1: I did have an enlisted woman who reported to me who described her experiences first of her chain of command to the senior enlisted people that worked for her, and then they brought it to me and I was just really struck by the fact that it was so different for her because she was junior. She felt very powerless when men were looking at her. It was sort of like she didn't have any authority to say anything to them, right? Because they're senior to her. She's below everybody on the food chain. And I think also because I came from a place where I felt just kind of more privilege in my life to be able to say like, hey back off. The one time that, the only time that I had any kind of a bad experience, actually the other officers, my male colleagues gathered around me and basically told the guy, back off, you're out of line. And it was very different for her. And that was one of the first things that started me thinking about. It's not as easy as just saying, this is the experience women have.
2: And how did law school come into play as opposed to, for example, government service or other options that might have interrelated here?
1: I really felt like it was really kind of about the rules and being able to translate people's stories into a violation of the rules, a violation of the law, to be able to do that work in a way that would have a concrete outcome was important to me as opposed to the really important work of theorizing, but then kind of how how does that end up in the world?
2: You started your career in the private sector. And then you spent almost ten years doing public interest law and in the nonprofit world, and then you returned to firm life. Can you tell us how you navigated those shifts? What that was like?
1: I did. I did but it, but it was really all kind of pursuit of that equality piece. So, after I did my LLM at Yale, decided to go into employment discrimination law. Because I realized that I was really kind of a litigator at heart, and again, that was that interest in kind of doing something that had a concrete outcome, right? As opposed to being in academia, being in policy work, which I think is actually really important to your point, but just wasn't how my mind worked, that that litigation and legal analysis was something I was very drawn to, and it was a good match for my particular skill set. Employment discrimination was the field where there are these strong equality laws and you have the opportunity to go to court and to tell people stories, to translate their stories into this is why this is a legal violation, this is why this is discrimination. I started at a civil rights law firm and I've come back to the same civil rights law firm. In between, I did want to explore nonprofit work and I'm really glad I did that. That was a great experience. I... Went to first a direct service in this nonprofit, Mobilization for Justice. They do some impact work, but largely it's just the really kind of on the ground, roll up your sleeves experience of serving hundreds of clients. And I think that just gave me a lot of perspective and grounding and contact with clients that I didn't have before. And then disability rights advocates recruited me. Just sort of out of the blue, I was going to go back into private practice and DRA recruited me and I discovered this area and and I had gotten interested in disability law before that for both sort of personal and professional reasons. MFJ had a big disability project, but I discovered this world of like the ADA, which even though we're 25 now, 30 years after the ADA, there's just a lot of work to do around black and white enforcement of the just black letter law violations. And that seemed again, like a really great match for my skill set and interest in litigation.
2: So I wanted to ask you on your firm page, you speaking of equality, which you mentioned a few times, you include that you believe equality is a human right and that you recognize that disability equity is intertwined with racial and other forms of injustice. And I have to say, that fascinated me. Can you help unpack that for our listeners? Uh, You may have seen these pictures. They've been circulating. Some people have
1: been circulating them around the Supreme Court affirmative action case, where we see three people lined up trying to look over a fence. And the the first person is a tall person. They're standing on the ground. They can see over standing on the ground. The second person is a short person. They can't see over. They're standing on the ground. They can't see over. And the third person is sitting in a wheelchair and can't see it. So the idea of equity is that equity is for all three people to be able to see over the fence, which means you get the first person stands on the ground. The second person, you give a small step. The third person needs a ramp and a platform to see over the fence. I think that, and, and I think that's really a good summary of my deep seated belief in equity and equal human dignity, which is, it's really. And spiritual belief, for me. The piece of its being intertwined with other forms of injustice, you could maybe think of as looking at that fence and saying, how did it get there? Like, why am I sitting in an office here in Midtown Manhattan on Lenape lift? Like, how did that happen, right? And looking at our country and its founding that literally placed a dollar of value on certain kinds of bodies, certain minds, certain abilities, right, and tracing that through to really through to, to, to today, and saying we can see in the barriers and in people's experience of the barriers those other kinds of inequality, one of the things that really highlighted it for me was when I got to law school and I had this experience of being being a woman on combat ships and sort of was very familiar with those forms of inequality i got to law school and there were all these student affinity groups that were working on really similar issues which was trying to get a more diverse faculty in terms of the their discipline in terms of their scholarship and I sort of came to realize that there are all these people that have other experiences of inequality, that it's not just me, that it
2: doesn't just work one way or like it does for me. I wanted to ask you, how do you wake up every day with that renewed passion? How do you fill that glass every day after all these years? I do
1: spend some time sort of consciously recharging. I do a lot of biking, I love bike riding. I love around New York City. There are so many beautiful rides you can do along the water, down to the Rockaways, Staten Island, the Palisades. I think it it does take my mind a little bit out of the everyday. You're often in nature. And of course, it's great exercise and I usually do it with friends. Um, I do make room for spirituality, spirituality. because as I say, that's kind of a grounding for me. I go to church every week.
2: I meditate every day. Would you say a little more about what your spiritual and your meditation practices do for you? So, uh, I'm a a practicing
1: Episcopalian. I go to church once a week, and I I really do ground my practice and kind of the ability to avoid burnout, right, in that coming back to the bigger picture, coming back to something beyond myself, And I find, like, during the pandemic, when I wasn't doing that, that I can kind of get burned out or frazzled. And I, I, for similar reasons, do a daily meditation practice. I'll sometimes even stop by the Episcopal Church down the block on my way into work just to, for, like, a five-minute check-in. Just, okay, big picture. Okay, we got the big picture. Now we can write the breeze another thing that's really important for me is to stay connected to my clients and to remember that the cases ultimately are about they're they're my client's
2: cases not mine and how do you share wins or losses with clients how do you express that to them and how do you share in those
1: i said the key is to remember that it's the client's case in either way so one time I, I had a really big win and I was really excited about it and I, I let the client know, but we hadn't had a chance to connect and talk about it and really sort of for her to process it and claim the win. Uh, and meanwhile, I sort of you know went out and told the world and she let me know when she talked to me. She was very kind about it, but she sort of let me know when she talked to me. Like, it wasn't great to see that in a public format before I had even had a chance to see it. Right. On the law side, I think it's probably the standard wisdom of maintaining the relationship, uh, maintaining the trust, which means respecting what a client has to say, even if it's not what I would do. And of course, just being straight with people, managing expectations, not getting so excited about a legal theory that you don't say the what you need to say in every case to every client, which is I cannot predict what a court will do.
2: And how do you go about handling a big loss? Like how how do you experience those emotions both Uh, for you as a lawyer and for your clients? I think
1: one of the most important things is not to be alone with it. I mean, I can't control that for clients. I do suggest to them, not as a legal advice, but as sort of What I've seen in my experience is that it really is good not to be alone with it and not to just be sharing it with your lawyer. That gets tricky from a privilege perspective, but whatever they can do to kind of take care of themselves and get the support they need, I think is really important and to move on with their life. And this is true sort of before and after there's an outcome that as much as possible to have helped people to understand that a lawsuit is not going to get you justice no matter how good the outcome is. And therefore, you need to make your life about your life and the lawsuit about the lawsuit. For myself, definitely think it's important not to be alone with it and to to have colleagues
2: you can talk with, to have friends you can talk with to so the extent that's consistent with privilege. I guess I'm surprised to hear you say that a lawsuit doesn't necessarily support justice. Tell me more about that.
1: I think a lawsuit can be a tool in the toolbox toward a a broader goal, but a lawsuit is going to be limited to what they're standing to challenge, to what the law does, to the outcome that you attain in that case, even in the best case scenario, and of course. There's always a risk of loss. So I think an ideal situation for a lawsuit is that you are offering a tool to a broader social
2: change movement. And how do you communicate that to a non-legal audience, to your clients? How do you let them understand something that they're going to have to invest in if they want to be a part of it?
1: Well... I think that, as I say, sort of being straight with people about what are the outcomes going to be and, and now sort of being able to say, well, I've had you know this much experience and I don't think that this goal that you have is going to be consistent with what's likely to happen in a lawsuit, right? And I turned down a lot of clients for that reason.
2: Are you able to offer any anecdotes maybe of cases you felt you had to turn down or what it's like to reject a case outright? So I,
1: I do very often, like many times a week, turn down cases, sometimes because there's not a legal claim and sometimes because I don't think that the client's goals will be accomplished in the litigation So, for example, after we brought the case against Yale for mental health policies, a lot of people reached out with individual situations about concerns that they had about their higher education experience. And in some cases, that was something I could be helpful with. And in other cases, it wasn't just because their goal really was to like get money for a bad experience at their university to put them through for example. And there just aren't a lot of legal tools, at least that I know about, that I'm good at, that
2: would allow that to be accomplished. You mentioned in reference to handling losses, that the most important thing is not to be alone with it. Have you had any experiences of noticing maybe colleagues who are doing that, people who are taking something badly Or have any experience supporting colleagues who have asked for help in a situation like that, or supporting colleagues who seem to need help but are not asking for help? Well,
1: I was very impressed. One of the things that I learned when I went to direct services at Mobilization for Justice is that there's this concept of vicarious trauma. And they were very thoughtful about that. They did trainings on it. But, you know, even more than kind of the formal trainings, I think, was the Very intentional weekly one-on-ones, team meetings, really structured ways of staying in touch. And later when I moved into doing impact work, um, I noticed a colleague who I thought was experiencing vicarious trauma with a very difficult case that had some very difficult facts and was kind of on the front lines of talking to the clients about these really tough experiences and... I just said, let's just meet weekly. Let's just meet every week and just take an hour to talk over whatever it is that you're seeing, even if there's nothing that I need to do as a senior lawyer. Let's just talk through what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're experiencing.
2: Shifting gears for a minute, who have been some of your most surprising mentors as far as mentorship is concerned?
1: So I've had so much great direction from so many people, but in terms of things that people might not think of, I would say my clients, right? I think that really listening to people's stories over the years in private practice, in direct services, sometimes just of the thousands and thousands of people I've spoken with about their experiences in the world or people that I've met at a legal services desk. Just seeing the world through their eyes is, I, I think, really invaluable.
2: Excellent. I think you're the first person we've had that answer it that way. But that makes sense. It, it's part of the circular nature of what we do as lawyers. Let me ask you about team building. You have been a part of large-scale, long-scale litigations. So I'm curious about team building. When you're interviewing someone, either for a job or to be part of your team, to be part of litigation. What are you looking for? How do you approach that?
1: What I've found works best over the years in job interviews for lawyers is to figure out how they think about legal issues. Because as I say, what I do is this kind of very specific field of litigation. Um, So I don't care whether they have kind of this or that specific technical legal knowledge usually. I mean, if they're interviewing for a relatively junior position, they'll gain that. But what I do want to hear and what I often ask is tell me about a recent legal issue that you've thought sort of, tell me how you thought about it. Tell me what your analysis is. Can they answer questions? Can they explain their thinking about it? Whether it's their writing sample or their note or something they worked on at, at an internship or job. I think Some people are really smart people and really great lawyers, and they care a lot about the issues, but the way that their minds work tend to be more, say, to think about things from a policy perspective, and that's great, but it's going to mean that being on a litigation team is going to be more of a struggle because you need to be able to think about what did the courts say? What's the language in the statute? What's the evidence that's in the case? Not how is this going to affect the world, right? Which is something we we all think about, but that's not how we argue. That's not the briefs we write.
2: Spinning off of the team building, how do you find that you can surround yourself with the right people?
1: One of the things that's exciting about the disability impact cases is that I often work with co-counsel um, and find ways to bring in actually co-counsel and clients who are nonprofit organizations who have, as we say, a lot of commitment to the issue, right? That they're working on kind of this whole world. They have a lot of expertise and commitment, and I'm kind of working on this little piece of it for them. And with the bigger cases, you can bring in, we're working with and Center for Mental Health Law on the case against Yale University about mental health policies. I'm working with a small law firm that's done a lot of transportation cases on a case about the bike lanes and access to the curb for people with disabilities in the District of Columbia and DC. So you get a chance to kind of work with different people. I'm working with Brittany Wilson at New York Law School on a case about Accessori, the New York City paratransit. And she has a a long history of doing a lot of interesting civil rights, economic justice litigation, and is herself an accessorite user. So I think that when you're doing somewhat bigger cases, there's an opportunity to kind of go outside, uh, who's at your firm. We also have great people at the
2: firm and that, and that's great too. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you needed to, let's say politely adjust your team? and shave someone off of it
1: i have seen lawyers who are not cut out for litigation which is one of the reasons why i try to sort of get a sense of how people are going to think and what their qualifications are just to do that particular very specific skill at the outset because i think it it is hard when somebody is just sort of hitting a brick wall in terms of how their mind works and what
2: courts are looking for. So we've talked about some affirmative action issues. Can I ask you just for your general reaction to this summer's Supreme Court decision?
1: I was actually at the University of Michigan Law School when that case was being litigated, when Kudger versus Bollinger was being litigated. So I was very aware of both the arguments that the university was making and the arguments that the interveners were making, because the interveners in that case argued that really the problem is that the standards of merit themselves that the universities are applying are biased. And I think if there's a silver lining to the Supreme Court's action, it is that it may force us to confront that question. Justice Sotomayor and her dissent pointed out that when the 14th Amendment was passed, they rejected language that would have said, you can't make distinctions on the basis of race, right? That's sort of, everybody stands on the ground and if you can see over the fence, great, right? Because we haven't treated anybody differently. And the 14th Amendment instead requires equal protection of the laws. And I love that kind of thinking about it, which, of course, how many times have I read it, but I never really thought about it in that way. Do I wish the outcome were different? Yes, but we are where we are, and we're still civil rights lawyers, and we're going to move forward.
2: Is like the next fantasy case that you would love to take on, is there some issue that you see out there that you're burning to work on?
1: Oh, I've thought of a lot of different things. One of the things that I think is is somewhat untapped here in New York City is that the New York City Human Rights Law, you mentioned the subway case, right? So in the case about the New York City subway system, we were able to apply the New York City Human Rights Law to go beyond the ADA. So the ADA was an amazing law, right? It was a bipartisan law. It was negotiated in 1990. It was signed by a Republican president, George H.W. Bush, But there were a lot of compromises, right? A lot of loopholes. The New York City Human Rights Law doesn't have that. It's broader. And so there's a chance now that we're 30 years later and some of those compromises don't make sense anymore to go back and expand the understanding where some of these loopholes, uh, either the ADA, the Fair Housing Act, which has certain loopholes for buildings that were not in residential use at the time. So all the loft conversions, for example, in New York City think that they're exempt. I think that it'd be really exciting to use the New York City human rights
2: law to expand some of those understandings. Is there a case that comes to mind where you did feel that sense of excitement about the matter at home?
1: The MTA case was a really exciting experience for me. I think especially in feeling like I was doing true community lawyering. I was standing up in front of a courtroom arguing to a judge with a packed courtroom full of people directly affected by the issue behind me. It really kind of telling their story, giving them a voice, working together. And before that, we were outside the courtroom. They were the ones talking to the media and so forth. Um, so that was definitely an exciting case and probably my first experience that really felt like this is true community lawyering. The class action cases that I've worked on before were great, but they were working with just sort of a group of named plaintiffs, not necessarily a whole community organized community
2: are you able to seek out that sort of work or is it just sort of nice when a case goes that way
1: it's definitely something that i look for when i screen cases uh, is what is the momentum behind this is this one person but then there are other people that feel other ways what what else has been done what has been tried before litigation what will go on after litigation uh, I wouldn't say it's, you know, all of my cases have a very strong element of outside organizing, but it's definitely something I look for.
2: I have no special understanding of the ADA, but I jokingly will say, oh, this is an ADA violation, point something out to my friend when I see a strange stairway, a ramp that appears to me to be too steep, et cetera, because they're all over New York City, and the more you look, the more strange things seem to appear. Is there sort of a pet peeve that you have when you walk around New York where you see something that drives you nuts?
1: I think my friends get a little tired of me being like, how can this newly renovated restaurant have three stairs up to the entrance? Right, right.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then I I listen to a lot of music. I go out and hear friends play and bands. And it's just astonishing how many new venues just obviously haven't even thought about disability access. And that's
2: an ADA violation, right? as well as a city law violation. So are you more on the, let me get very personal now, are you more on the side of bikers or pedestrians? For me, I feel that it's a binary choice. You have to be on one side or the other.
1: Well, I am a card-carrying member of Transportation Alternatives, which is a, a biking advocacy group. And they have a great quote, which is bikers and pedestrians are natural allies, right? So I'm bringing this case on behalf of people in Washington, D.C. who are challenging the protected bike lanes there, because the particular way that they're going in is blocking access to the curb for people that get around the city in other ways. And that's to go back to the issue of how does that intersect with other forms of injustice? The studies show that the bikers are whiter, wealthier, and younger. And the people who are commuting or getting around by bus, by car, in ways that they need to be able to get from a vehicle to the curb, tend to be from the more remote areas, tend to be less wealthy, tend to be older, and tend to be African-American. And close to 50% of the population in the District of Columbia is African-American, 75% of the disabled population is African-American. So there's really a disproportional impact. And I think a different voice in what's getting heard politically in the commitment to blast through miles and miles of bike lane without thinking about how are other people
2: getting around? So it strikes me that perhaps lawyers have a bigger role to play in in enhancing the harmony at least in New York City, between all the different modalities that people are using the streets?
1: I think that lawyers have a role to play in cases like this District of Columbia case, like the Subways, where what's happening is a reflection of who has the power, who has the voice, and not what are the rights of marginalized groups to have that equal status. And because these are civil rights, the law gives us a tool to make those marginalized voices more heard than they would be in the political process.
2: Maya Goodell, it's been so wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for chatting with us on This Lawyer's Life. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to This Lawyer's Life. We are already planning more conversations with successful lawyers, and we want your help. If you have burning questions about professional development, share them with us by sending an email to thislawyerslife at nycbar.org. And don't forget to subscribe to This Lawyer's Life wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Thank you for listening to This Lawyer's Life. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers, and not necessarily of the city bar. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple, Google, or Spotify, or at our website at www.nycbar.org slash podcasts. And be sure to check out Building Belonging, a podcast that embraces authentic conversations about DEIB solutions by amplifying the most marginalized voices in the legal industry and exploring spaces others dare not. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.